So these next five episodes are going to be five that are very personal to us. But today's is a little bit more conversational than some of the others might be. And I am personally excited because we get to hear about Sarah's fashion sense throughout high school. You're shaking your head. I knew we should have scripted this introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But anyway, (laughs) I think this is so great because what better way to dive into a difficult conversation around what it means to be Asian in America, what it means to be Asian in fashion, what it means to be Asian growing up in New York, right? And fundamentally, are you Asian? Are you American? Are you both? So to kick this off, we're interviewing Sarah's very good, very old friend, Alan Mack. He's not that old. I meant very old. Okay. Uh (laughs) I'll let you take it from here. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women uproot systemic racism by using their privilege. We are your biracial half Japanese hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Super excited for so many reasons to have you here. Alan, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name's Alan Mack. I am the co-founder of this brand called Virgin Tomorrow, as well as a managing partner of the fashion brand Public School. And I've known Sarah for a long, long time. (laughs) Yes. Like, I don't know. I love the face that you made, by the way. Like, Sarah's face is fully like... He's going to reveal all. (laughs) I've known Sarah since when she used to wear... Her dad's pants with suspension. No, no, let's not. Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. Let's go there. Oh, good. Alan, you are the interview I have been waiting for. Yes, yes I can talk about that all day long and I can show you guys visual proof if, if no one believes me. Yes, photos or it didn't happen, Alan. So yes. It's a good segue into why Misasha had actually heard of you because as you just indicated, I've not always been the most fashion forward person. Some would say you've never still to this day been the most fashion forward person, Sarah. But I do know that when I mentioned public school, Misasha was like, oh yeah, I know that brand. Like you have, like, it's a real, it's a freaking cool brand. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's funny. I've been in this industry for so long that, you know, and maybe this is like sort of part of this conversation when we think about what the Asian American experience is. It's like, sometimes I think about what it is that I do and there's this side of me that kind of minimizes what I've done or what my accomplishments are. And I think that that's sort of the experience that I think that we can collectively share is that, you know, I think for the most part, you know, when I think about other peers within the industry or, or other peers of mine who aren't Asian. There's no shame in people bragging about their accomplishments. But I think for, for us as, as Asian folks, it's one of those things where it's like, we're never going to brag about our accomplishments. It's just kind of expected, right? And so when you just said, you know, yeah, public school is like a real brand. It's like, yeah, it's a real brand, but I don't think of that way. I just think of it as a brand, as you know, something that I do. And whenever people say that it's a real brand and it's the real deal. It's like, there's a side of me that just, you know, does like the hand covering the face type of giggle thing. (laughs) It reminds me of, you know, my mom is the Japanese parent that I have. And I still remember that feeling of like never feeling like I got my mom's approval because in public, like you do, you put down and certainly in Japanese culture, I don't know what it's like in Chinese culture for those who are listening. Ellen is of Chinese descent, but you know, in terms of my mom, she would always in front of other people put us down, right? Like you just minimize your experiences and your accomplishments and it's not something, but yet the standards are expected that you must 
achieve those great things, but we don't brag about it. We certainly don't say that we're so proud of you until, I don't know, maybe some of these conversations happen and we break down those standards of behavior that I think are sort of in, ingrained a little bit in certainly in Japanese culture. I don't know, Misasha, if you've experienced um, 100%. That. Yes. You know, I was telling this story yesterday in an Asian affinity group meeting about how I became a lawyer and my brother became a doctor. So it was like, you know, winning the Asian parent lottery sort of thing where you get these kids who are like very successful. And I have like big air quotes here on these standards and but that wasn't, it was expected and it was never, you know, discussed in a way that was like, oh, this is so great. I think there were standards that we knew we had to live up to and we weren't going to talk about how we got there or how we felt once we were there. And then we were just, you know, supposed to be looking on to the next thing. And so I, I think that's very true. Yeah. Those levels of expectations and how we react to our own success. Yeah. Even when I think of it now, sometimes there are times where you know, when people consider who I am as being successful, I just don't really feel that way. And there's this element where, you know, there are times where I'm like, well, you know, maybe I just got lucky type of a thing rather than, you know, was it my abilities that got me there? And, you know, oftentimes it's like we think about updating our resumes or updating LinkedIn's and stuff like that. And for the longest time I had a LinkedIn account, but I had nothing there. And then all of a sudden it's like, there was this light bulb moment where I just had to update my LinkedIn because, you know, at public school, different brands would be reaching out to us to do collaborations and stuff like that. And, you know, for me, I'm the one who handles a lot of that business development and I handle a lot of those collaborations. The thing is, is that on LinkedIn, I never put that there. So people were reaching out to like admin people. They were reaching out to the designs team to say, hey, we want to do this collaboration with you. And I'm like, oh, geez, I can't have all these opportunities go, you know, sort of unnoticed or not responded to. So then all of a sudden I just updated my LinkedIn simply for that so that people knew that, hey, this is the guy that does X rather than reaching out to the designer say, you know, we want to do a collaboration. Let me actually reach out to the person who's involved with that. But yeah, I mean, even updating that, it was just, it's a little bit hard because it's, you know, LinkedIn is, it's the modern day resume, right? Where we brag a little bit about what it is that we do and what it is that we've accomplished. And it's really hard to brag about what it is that I've accomplished because I don't really think about my life in terms of those accomplishments. So yeah, it's just a very funny thing. And I think it's one of those things that's just ingrained in us culturally to not think about those things. We just sort of live life and just to your point, it's expected. So to achieve is expected. It's not something to brag about. It just is. It's the equivalent of breathing, basically. <laughs> Which is so interesting because, you know, on one level, I hear stories like that and I understand the feeling of things like that. And I put it into the greater societal context of certainly for women, a lot of women I know have a hard time, you know, with confidence or with their worth, their self-worth and talking about the things that they do and really giving ourselves a break and being like, oh my gosh, I really do handle a lot, both professionally and in the homes, if we have a home that we're building and that sort of thing. But it's a different type of conversation because it sounds like that, but it's not about confidence. We have the confidence. It's just a different level of communicating about it, right? I don't know if it's just an internal issue. It's also how we present it to the world. And we're mindful of that. Yeah. I think what you just touched on in terms of communication is a big element of it, where I think historically Americans or white folks will communicate really well. And I think we as Asian folks, we have a hard time communicating, whether it's for good or for bad. We just don't really communicate in that kind of way, where it's like, I remember growing up, 
you know, unless things were really bad, it was just, my parents never asked how I was. And, you know, they never checked in on me in that kind of way. It was always just expected that unless Alan's crying or unless, you know, he's like hyper excited about something, he's just not going to talk very much. So, you know, for me, my personality is pretty even keel, middle of the road type of thing. I don't know if it's a, a good thing or a bad thing to be that way. Some might say it's a little bit robotic where, because I'm just like flatlined all the time. But yeah, I mean, I, I remember growing up, it's like, there wasn't that type of communication. I didn't grow up in a house where my parents hugged me or said, I love you or anything like that. And now as an adult, it still feels a little bit foreign to me to communicate in that kind of way. And I don't do the best job of it. I certainly try to do a better job. But yeah, I mean, communication is one of these things that I think is really fundamental to that Asian experience or to Asian culture where we just don't communicate in that kind of way. I remember it's like, if I did a great job, my dad would come over and like, give me two pats on my back. And then cool. That was it. It was great. <laughs> that was like physical affection. It's interesting because we have another mutual friend, a really good friend of ours who is also of Asian descent. And my mom continues to know her and adore her. But when we were really close growing up, she lost her mother. And I mean, we spent so much time in each other's homes. And I remember my Japanese mother asking me, she was devastated for my friend that she lost her mother. And she asked me like, Sarah, when she comes over, is it okay if I hug her? Mm -hmm. Right. It was a really quintessentially Asian experience to me that reminds me of what you just said. Like that physical expression of touch is very, very different in certainly my household. It sounds like your household. It's something that in a very physical and affectionate Western culture is actually different about what happens behind the scenes that people may not be aware of. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think the funny thing is, is when I'm with white people, it's almost like I'm a different type of person in that regard, because it's like, I'll hug white people. But if I see an Asian person, it's like, I won't hug the Asian person. It's just an odd thing. And it's obviously the same person. It's still me, but I just behave differently because I think that we have these cultural standards that are norms that we just sort of don't cross that line. So what was it like? You know, you talked a lot about growing up, you know, in a white community, going to nice white dominant, you know, mainly white schools. What was it like for you I mean, for me, it was always tough and I never really you know, thought too much about it because it was just what my life was. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, that I've described to you in, in some of our conversations and just I've described to other people. But, you know, there's this element where I grew up not really having a true identity or not necessarily knowing what my identity was, where, you know, on one hand, when you see me, it's very obvious that I'm Asian. I don't look white. I don't look anything other than Asian. Sometimes I get mistaken for being Japanese, but that's a whole other story. But yeah, I mean, even though sort of my skin color and my, and my ethnicity was Asian, my sensibilities weren't necessarily Asian in that regard. You know, I think growing up in white communities, my sensibilities always sort of crossed more over into white sensibilities. And I think that that's where this issue of identity was really challenging because you know, certainly I didn't look the part of a white person, but my sensibilities aligned with them. So whenever I was with white people, I always knew that I was different. So I wasn't ever fully a part of sort of that group. And I don't know that, I don't think that I was ever purposely excluded because I wasn't white, but it was just always this feeling that you had. It was this sense. And maybe that had to do with just, you know, my culture growing up where there were certain nuances or certain subtleties within white culture that I couldn't always relate to. And maybe that's where this artificial divide was. But at the same time, it's like when I think about, you know, the Asian folks who grew up in our community, I never felt an affinity or any sort of you know, closeness towards them. 
you know, and when I think about those Asian people, it's like there was this, you know, segment of Asian folks who grew up in our town where, you know, they were really proud of being Asian and they weren't like, you know, fobby type of Asians who were, you know, just, you know, fresh off the boat type of Asians. They were, you know, Asian Americans, right? But they were really proud about their Asian heritage. You know, I describe it as, you know, that group that listened to Erasure and the Pet Shop Boys. And that was never quite me. But yeah, it was always just this issue of confusion in terms of what my identity was. And I think that, you know, it wasn't until probably like middle of college that that I started to think more of it and think about, you know, who I actually was. And, you know, it really wasn't until college that I really honestly felt comfortable in my own skin in that regard, where I just chalked it up to being, well, I'm not Asian in that, you know, Pet Shop Boys, Erasure type of type of Asian, but I'm also not white because clearly when I look in the mirror, I don't look like I'm white. So yeah, I mean, it, it took a long time for me to be comfortable with who I was. And, you know, to this day, there's still times where I don't feel fully comfortable with who I am, depending on what the environment is. My older son, he plays a lot of sports and, you know, it's like he plays lacrosse. Lacrosse is a really white sport. And, you know, I'll be on the sidelines and stuff like that. And there are times where I am the only person of color on that sideline, whether it's on our team or the other team, right? And it's very clear as day that I don't look like these people. My wife is also Jewish, so we'll go to the synagogue and I'll look around the room and I'm just like, geez, I am the only person who is not white in this entire room. So I'm very aware of that. And I'm very aware that, you know, there's this still this element of confusion in terms of my identity. Um, okay. So I have so many questions. First, your sports story though, because Sarah's heard this like a million times that we live in a very white community. You know, my husband is black. We've got two boys who play sports. So we are oftentimes, you know, the only non-white family on the baseball diamond, on the soccer field. And Sarah, I don't even know if I told you this story, but when I cheer for my boys, I do it in Japanese so they can hear my voice over other people. And I did not recognize like the looks that I was getting from people until I was doing it recently. And then I had like five mom's heads like swivel in my direction. Like what is happening here? But it is something that I'm hyper aware of as well, like where we are and who we are in various scenarios. I mean, for me, I think it kind of just is what it is. I don't know that they do or behave in a way that's exclusionary to me. They certainly don't feel make my son feel like he's excluded in any kind of way. And I think it's maybe just a, an issue that, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm internalizing it, right? Where maybe I just think it's something that's just in me where I notice it and maybe no one else notices it. You know, but, but certainly I think, you know, for me at least growing up, this proximity to whiteness being Asian has, you know, there people just sometimes just treat me as white because I grew up in a white community. Yeah, I mean, there have been various instances, but even on the lacrosse field, you know, a few weeks ago, we were just, you know, talking about stuff and the issue of Popeye's, the fried chicken joint came up. And, you know, one of the other dads said, we don't want that in our town. I'm like, hmm, all right. I mean, I fucking love fried chicken. <laughs> I love Popeye's, right? <laughs> and that dad's like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's a different crowd who goes there. So I was like, mm, okay, I know what you mean then. And that's one of those things where, you know, I think that he forgot that I was also a person of color. And, you know, certainly it's like the certain crowd that he was implying wasn't me, but it's like, I'm not white, dude. So you can't be saying that kind of stuff. And that's just daily life, right? And that happens. 
Well, I mean, I think for me, you know, having my kids be half black too, right? Quarter Japanese. I don't know if there's, well, I mean, A, if white parents are saying racist slurs about my kids, I'm going to, that's absolutely not going to be okay. Or if they're making racist comments around me, that's also not going to be okay. But sometimes, you know, I just want my kids to be treated like every other kid, right? And you know, there was a mom who had made a comment that's like, oh, it's really hard to tell the kids apart, you know, with masks on these days. And I'm like, not for me, because my kid like <laughs> looks very different than everyone else's kid. You know, I think because my kids look so different, there's a very visual awareness that we are different. But sometimes I do think when people are talking to me specifically, they forget, they don't know that I am also a person of color. And to Alan's point, I think, and also Sarah, you and I have discussed that we've been involved in a lot of conversations where people say things that are racist, that are microaggressions, and because they are being of Asian descent is not factored into it. That white adjacency may be part of it. Thanks for letting me interrupt. I appreciate that. No, but I, well, so I want to go back and ask because Alan, you were talking about white sensibilities and I want to ask, what did you mean by that? What are white sensibilities? Cause I am so curious and have experienced some similar stuff. Yeah. I think it's like style of dress, you know, just different references and different influences in, in my life. Certainly the music that I listen to. One of the unique things I think about growing up in Long Island and in the suburbs is, you know, when I think about my friends who grew up in like Manhattan or Queens or something like that. It's like, didn't really matter what race you were. I think a lot of those folks listened to a lot of hip hop. Whereas I think one of the unique things about growing up in Long Island, and you know, I think that this is probably the case in a lot of suburbs of New York, is that the music that you listen to, it's not just one genre, you kind of listen to a lot. And for me growing up, you know, the music that I listened to, it's like, there is a period of time where you know, I'm listening to Michael Jackson, just like every other kid of our generation listened to. But at the same time, it's like, I'm listening to Prince, I'm listening to New Edition. You know, there was a period of time where I was listening to like Belvid DeVoe after New, New Edition split up and everything like that. You know, and at the same time, it's like, here I am. I remember when I was in sixth grade, so vividly being exposed to Guns N' Roses and listening to Appetite for Destruction at my neighbor's house. And I'm just like, damn, this shit's great. Right. And you know, here it is. It's like, if I were growing up in Queens, there's no chance that I would have been listening to Guns N' Roses in that kind of way. But I think because I grew up in Long Island and in the suburbs, like I said, it's like, I'm listening to Guns N' Roses on one hand. And on the other hand, I'm listening to New Edition. And it's like, those obviously don't really mix. And I think that that's something that's really unique about the suburbs of New York. And I've heard this from, you know, other people, even beyond, you know, people who grew up in our community. But I know of other people who, you know, grew up in the suburbs of New York, out on Long Island. And it was the same sort of thing where it's like, these references are really different, but these are really white sensibilities because I think that, you know, maybe what it is, is even the sort of the more Asian of Asian folks who grew up in our community, I think that they were a little bit more one-dimensional in terms of what their likes and their tastes were. And I think, you know, for me, it just sort of meandered and it was kind of all encompassing. And I don't know if that's really a, a white thing or if it's just a me thing, but you know, there was, yeah, I mean, I think for me, music is like the biggest thing when I describe like Asian versus white sensibilities. I think that music is that thread, at least for me, that really distinguished if you were, you know, part of the Asian Asians or if you were part of the white crowd. 
type of a thing. Well, and it's interesting because I think for some people listening who didn't grow up with groups of Asian friends or didn't grow up with, you know, people on the coasts, for example, because I think there was a heavier population, depending on where you are. I think certainly there's other areas that have larger Asian populations. But when you said what you said about Pet Shop Boys and Erasure, right, or about the music that you were just talking about, like I have a visceral image in my head, like I know what you're talking about. And I know, you know, there's also communities where, you know, church is a huge part in certain Asian communities. So there'll be ethnically aligned churches, the Korean church, the Chinese church, like there's just groups that are formed for that have that alignment based on your ethnicity and your racial background. But I think for those who are outside of it or who only knew one Asian person, for example, growing up, they're going to be sitting here being like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I don't see all of these differences in the subtleties and the variety that you are talking about. And I think that's where I want to circle back to this idea of white adjacent, like Asian people as you know, the model minority myth. We're going to be really digging into the history of immigration in our country. We're going to be digging into the discriminatory policies, this idea of the model minority myth. But I want to talk about almost that invisibility that happens. I want to talk personally about it because you had, I mean, you're the son of immigrants. You're of Chinese descent. And you went to a restaurant in New York City and... So this this story here is this, this restaurant in New York City. It's called Dallas BBQ. And it's really damn good. Like I mentioned before, I love fried chicken. Well, Dallas BBQ has these amazing Texas wings, these really big, crusty, crispy fried chicken wings. And, you know, it's also known as a ribs joint. So, you know, I think you can probably sense where I'm going with this, but, you know, the clientele of Dallas BBQ is predominantly black. I went there with a friend of mine from high school and we went there, you know, after we had finished college, we remained friends and we went to this restaurant and, and she's white, she's Jewish. And, you know, we were having dinner at this restaurant and, you know, her mom called her up while we were having dinner. And then she said to her mom, she's like, mom, we're the only white people in here. And I looked at her, I'm like, no, you're the only white person in here, <laughs> right? Where it's, you know, again, it's that adjacency where, you know, for me growing up, it's exactly that where I knew that I was Asian at the same time, it's like there's people who I was surrounded by that didn't treat me as Asian and they just treated me as white. I don't know if that was a matter of convenience or if it was a matter of anything else, but certainly, yeah, I mean, it's that where I've been treated both ways. I've been treated as really Asian sometimes and I've been treated as really white sometimes. And I guess I'm kind of neither. I'm somewhere in between. What did you think when she said that? Like really? And then what did you think afterwards, both in the moment and afterwards when she said that? I mean, for me, it was just really funny how there was just like, just no awareness that I wasn't white. Just the same as when I was on a lacrosse field and, you know, here's another dad who's saying, well, yeah, you know, it's like, that's not the type of crowd. And he was referring to black folks, right? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, so often people forget that I am a person of color. Maybe it's because I don't have an accent. Maybe because I sound the part. I don't know, but I certainly don't look the part. I think this is such an important conversation because when I think about this, I think about like growing up and so I grew up in LA and so it was, but when you're saying Pet Shop Boys and Erasure, I was like, I know those Asians, like I hundred percent. And we had very much like an LA Asian, (laughs) very, I was explaining to Sarah about the low rider, like the cars with the lights under the cars. Yeah. Like, and you know, there's a part of me that seriously loved that. I had like my Suzuki racing sticker. Curious. Oh yeah. On my Camry. Yes. Welcome for that imagery. But, you know, there was, I would go to school and I also went to a very sort of white 
school and I would come home and a lot of what was at home was Japanese, right? Like a lot of the traditions in our house, a lot of the cultural things, a lot of what we did was very informed and very based in Japanese culture. So, you know, when you're going to school and being in this white community and people are, you know, a lot of the time assuming you're white, what was it like then when you were going home and the more Chinese things that you were doing at home that weren't visible to those people who were white? Yeah, I mean, there was always a certain side of me growing up where... You know, like I said, it's like there was this issue of not really having a knowledge of what my identity actually was. And it sort of flip-flopped. And, you know, I re- one of the stories that my parents tell was when I was in, in nursery school, you know, I came home one day and I don't remember this because I was too young, but my mom would tell me that, you know, like I came home one day and I pointed at them and I said, one Chinese, two Chinese. And then I pointed at myself and I said, one American, where you know, here I am, obviously, it's like, yeah, I'm an American. But I think what I meant by one American, meaning like, one not Chinese. But yeah, I mean, this is when I was a very young kid. And, you know, there's certainly that. But I mean, growing up there, I mean, culturally, I was Chinese, I spoke Chinese at home, I, you know, ate Chinese food, I cooked Chinese food. You know, Sarah's been over my house where, you know, we buy whole chickens in a Chinese house. We don't buy parts of chickens on a styrofoam tray. We buy the whole damn thing and then we cut it up however we want to cut it up. And, you know, the way that you buy a whole chicken in Chinese markets, it's called a Buddhist style chicken. And and really what you want in a Buddhist style chicken is like the feet are still there. The neck is still there. The head is still there. Like all of that stuff is all there. So that's, you know, what I was accustomed to. And that's how I cooked. And that's how I was raised. It's like I started cooking when I was eight, nine years old, and I was using a cleaver by the time I was nine. I mean, that would be shocking and horrible, I think, to most white folks to think, geez, you put a cleaver in the hands of a nine-year-old child. But I mean, that's what you do in a Chinese household. And that's how it was. And yeah, I mean, I I don't know that there was ever a moment where it was any different for me in that kind of way. I never really talked about that. But at the same time, it's not like I hid it. Because growing up, I would always invite people over to my house. And yeah, I mean, on a weekly basis, friends would just come over to our houses for these big parties and barbecues and stuff like that. And yeah, it was never anything that was hidden or that I was ashamed of just because it was me. I remember the chicken and like watching you pluck it. And then by the way, eating chicken that way, so fresh is the best chicken I've ever had. Like I still remember one particular barbecue that we were over at your house with and it was just, it's delicious. Yeah, no, without a doubt. But it's interesting because I think for all of us, we're speaking and it's the only experience we've ever known. There's nothing we can compare it to because it just is what it is, you know, but there are still times where we're aware of the stereotypes that exist about Asians out there. Mm -hmm. And what is your take on the stereotypes that are out there? And also how have those stereotypes impacted your sort of how you show up, especially when you're working in a place like New York? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the typical one is, oh, you know, all Asians are good at math and stuff like that, right? It's like we lived with that. And yeah, I'm actually pretty decent at math, but it's not because I'm Asian. (laughs) It's, you know, just one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'm halfway decent at math. At the same time, I can't do simple arithmetic in my head sometimes. So, you know, chalk that up for killing the stereotype right there. But yeah, I mean, professionally speaking, it's, you know, when people see me, it's, they just automatically think, well, here's this Chinese guy in the apparel industry. So he must produce cheap stuff. He must be own a factory or he must, you know, have access to really cheap labor. 
and therefore we should be able to bang them up on price. And I've lived with that all throughout, you know, the time that I've been in the fashion industry. And it's just sort of implied that, oh, geez, we're going to contact Alan because he's got access to better prices because his network is in that kind of way. Whereas I don't think that that would be the case if I were white. But yeah, it's definitely impacted me. And I see it on a daily basis where people will bang me up on costs when, you know, it's like I know the value of what it is that I do and I know how much stuff actually costs. And it's like, all right, so you're banging me up because of why? Because you don't think that I deserve to like make the same profit margin as someone who isn't Chinese? I mean, that's not very fair nor equitable. But yeah, and I would imagine the same thing has happened throughout the workplace for for so many other Asian people, you know, whether it be, you know, asking for raises and actually getting them, right? It's all of that. So yeah, I mean, we see it and I see it on a daily basis. I think, well, A, that's just the viewpoint in the fashion industry, right? Of you being Chinese and therefore having this access to cheap labor or that stereotype is terrible. And, you know, as I'm hearing you talk and we've talked about sort of that being seen as more Asian or being seen as white, in that instance, it sounds really like in the fashion industry, you are being seen as Asian and sort of all the stereotypes that go along with that. Do you feel that way? Is there sort of, are people sort of lumping you in with white people in fashion or is it definitely you're standing out as an Asian, good and bad? I think it, in terms of being in the fashion industry, this is one of those cases where you know, it works against you in that regard because they don't hold you to the same degree of whiteness per se. Whereas, you know, in social circles, sometimes people will hold me at the same level as a white person, but here I am now in the fashion industry. And I don't think that people are holding me up in the same kind of way. And I think that at least, you know, as it's been in the fashion industry for all this time, it's taken a really long time for Asians to be recognized within the fashion industry. You know, certainly in terms of creatives, there are more and more fashion creatives who are of Asian descent. And I think that they are being recognized. But me within the fashion industry, I'm not a creative. I'm an operations. I'm a supply chain. I'm a, you know, a business type of guy. And yeah, I definitely see that. And I feel that I'm not treated in the same way as other people who would occupy the same roles that I do if I were white. What do you say to people who I just recently jumped in on a thread where one Asian person was telling another Asian person, I don't believe it's always about race. I wish you would not, you would be less quick to blame race on some of these things that are happening. And I think where I stand on that is that people are the experts in their own life experiences. And if it feels like it's racism, it's racism, right? How do you know though, like, but at the same time, pushing back on a little bit of that, what are some of the indicators that you have? Like, I would have imagined in business, everyone is always trying to get the better price, for example, or, you know, so what are some of examples of things or feelings that you're getting to indicate that you're more aware of your race and how people are perceiving you? I think what it is, is there's this element where I think people feel that I'm very um, interchangeable with somebody else. To find a substitution would be easier. And I don't necessarily feel that that's the same case when it comes to white people within my industry. Where And maybe this goes back to the beginning of the conversation where we don't brag about what our achievements are and what our abilities are, right? And because we don't brag about that stuff and we don't celebrate it in that same kind of way, people just think that, well, what you do really isn't that valuable. So you're easily replaceable. I can substitute someone out for you. Whereas 
I think what happens in the case of, you know, white people, they do an amazing job of telling people that they've done an amazing job. And because they do a better job of telling that story and telling that narrative, and you know, it's a marketing thing, right? Because they do a better job of, of marketing themselves in that kind of way, then it makes the perceived value of them that much higher than my perceived value, because I don't do a great job of marketing myself in that way. But yeah, I mean, it goes back to how we grew up where it's like, just put your head down, just do your shit, work hard, and it'll work itself out. In America, no, that is not the case. If you just put your head down and work hard, it will not work out because what will happen is the person who is less capable than you, but just happens to be a little bit louder than you is going to get ahead of you because they're telling everyone that they're really awesome. Meanwhile, you're still stuck working hard. And for what? It's not going to get you anywhere. When you were talking about keeping your head down, right, and working hard, it, you know, it makes me think of so many conversations that I've had recently among my Asian friends about how we were taught that, right? How we were taught head down, work hard, don't rock the boat, don't be a burden to people, right? You are here, you're not going to make other people feel uncomfortable, you know, and I, I think about when you were talking about, you know, instances of racism, and I think back to my own life and how I've laughed away the microaggressions, you know, or, or I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. So I'm not going to call them out on, on something that is directed at me that is racist. I will, however, immediately call them out when they say something about my kids. But when it's been directed to me and in an Asian way, I have not. And so, you know, I'm curious for you, what have you done, you know, when faced with racism? Has it, I think what has been sort of a theme through these discussions that I've had with other Asians about, you know, not wanting to being culturally taught to not want to make people feel uncomfortable to stay quiet has really impacted how we've addressed microaggressions and racism. And I'm curious if that's been the same for you. Yeah, I think for me, it's, you know, for as long as I've been alive, it's one of those things where you experience it and you don't say anything about it. You know, and to this day, I have a hard time. I have a really hard time saying stuff about it because, it's just been so ingrained in me to not say anything about it, right? It's, you know, the example that I use about, you know, being on the lacrosse field about the Popeyes situation. It's like, that would have been a prime example where I should have said something, but I didn't, right? And it didn't directly affect me, but it was wrong and I should have said something. And, you know, with everything that's going on in the world right now, it's a really tough time for me personally, because, you know, on one hand, I just... I want to say something and I want to do more, but I wasn't taught to have that voice. And I have a hard time speaking out in that kind of way. And, you know, for everyone who is, it's, I admire them so much for being so strong and having that, that ability and that strength to speak out. But the tough thing is, is like, I've got this internal conflict where I'm like, geez, am I being so hypocritical here where, you know, I'm celebrating these people and I'm championing them, but I'm not able to have the guts to stand up in the same way as this younger generation of Asian person. And it's a real struggle. And yeah, I mean, I'm conflicted on a daily basis of like how much I should be rocking the boat because it's the right thing to do. But yeah, I, I struggle with it daily. It's so hard. And what I just heard you say was young Asians, which what? Is that making us older Asians now? <laughs> like, are we those people now? But I also wanted to ask, you know, there are cases where people try to slide comments by and we decide whether we're going to speak up for ourselves or against racism in those moments. But 
when you say, you know, these times, I like, I, we have to talk about COVID and the language that our former president used and the fact that you work in New York City, where a lot of these hate crimes against Asian, elderly Asians in particular are happening. How has that been for you? How has COVID impacted you? Have you experienced things? What are you aware of? Like, how are you? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of COVID, when this was, you know, a problem that was in China, right, where COVID was running rampant in China, and before it hit us here in the States, I was still going into the city every day, and I was taking the train. And I remember very vividly that I was afraid to cough, or I was afraid to sneeze, because, you know, here I am, I'm on this train, and it's jam-packed on these trains during rush hour. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, gosh, if I cough on this train, like, what's going to happen? Are people going to look up? see who it is who coughed and see, oh gosh, there's this Chinese guy, he must have COVID and then have this massive movement of people away from me. So I was very aware of that. But yeah, I mean, nothing ever happened to me in that kind of way. I never really experienced direct racism towards me, you know, all throughout COVID. But certainly what's been going on now in terms of the violence towards towards Asian people, it's something that I'm very aware of. It's something that that I'm scared for my parents. My parents are, you know, in their 70s and they, you know, still go out to Queens, they go out to Flushing, they go out to Chinatown and stuff like that. And you'd think that you would go to these communities that are predominantly Asian and it would be safe. But the reality is, is that the violence against Asian people is happening in these communities too. So they're not safe. So, you know, when I think about my own personal safety, it's like, yeah, there's a side of me that is a little bit worried for my own personal safety, but I figure it's like, you know, something happened, I'll figure it out. I'm young enough that I can figure it out. I can run away. I can defend myself or something like that. But, you know, my parents, they're 70 something years old. They're going to be 76 this year. So I don't have the same type of confidence that they're going to be able to defend themselves. If someone comes over and pushes my mom, it's like, it's not going to be good. She's not going to be able to fight back. She's not going to be able to stay on her feet in that kind of way. So yeah, I mean, there's that certain level of fear. And interestingly enough, like a few weeks ago, you know, I went into the city with my family and, you know, this is the first time I had taken a subway in, in over a year. And, you know, right before that, maybe like days before, like a week or so before, I saw this video of, of this Asian kid on the subway, you know, just getting beaten up and he got choked out. And here he is just like laying there lifeless on the subway. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a little bit scared to be an Asian person going into the city now. And I grew up in New York. And even when I was a kid, I used to go into the city all the time. You know, I would ride subways by myself. I would walk around the city by myself. And, you know, it didn't matter what neighborhood it was. I never felt unsafe. But here I am now as a grown ass man. I feel unsafe walking around in the city. Like, that's not good. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, should I be looking into pepper spray? Should I be looking into a taser? Should I be looking into bear spray? Like, is this what it's become that now as a grown ass man, I have to think about how I'm going to defend myself rather than just, you know, thinking about using just like my own hands to defend myself. It's like now I need something a little bit of extra because the craziness is just so elevated. I feel the same way about my mom. I feel the same fear. So I understand. And it is, it's, we were just in a conversation earlier today where this sort of targeted hate and violence against Asian people is new to us. And for a lot of Black people, it's something that they've grown up with, like that just awareness of their 
body's proximity to potential danger and being potentially a target. And they've had to live and grow with that from the time they're younger in some cases. And I feel like there's a lot of Asian people really recently entering this conversation about their identity and how we're not white and how there is potential danger against us now. But I wanted to ask how you felt when people used to call it the China flu. I mean, it was to be expected, right? I mean, we had Trump as our president who used every single opportunity to mean China. And I think that there were very specific political reasons of why he did that. Because there's a struggle, right, between the U.S. and China in terms of their standing from a geopolitical perspective. And, you know, Trump being Trump, rather than, you know, sort of handling things in, in the right way, he resorts to name calling. And, you know, basically name calling in a way to, to make other groups lose face or to just make them look bad. And I'm not necessarily certain that he necessarily used China flu to... Um, hurt Asian Americans. I think that there were, you know, very specific political reasons for doing that. But there was a side effect to using the term China flu. And it did indeed hurt Asian Americans. And maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in that. But I kind of see it from a bigger global perspective. But, you know, there's no doubt that the rhetoric from Trump just has made a whole lot worse for a lot of groups. And it's normalized hate. It's normalized racism. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't something that I was unexpected that it wasn't something that was unexpected that we'd be in the situation that we're in right now. I didn't expect it to get to this level of of violence and this level of hate, you know, especially here in New York, because I just felt like we're multicultural here. We're not looking at things through that lens, but I was wrong. We are going to talk about the difference. You know, we talked earlier about how some people may not understand the the so many different countries and languages and cultures that are part of this Asian word that we use. But is there anything else that you wish more white people knew about your particular Asian experience growing up as a second generation Chinese American? I think the reality is, is that, you know, in, in my case, I don't consider myself anything other than an American. You know, when people ask me where I'm from, I mean, naturally, my first answer is New York. I mean, that's where I'm from. And, you know, usually it's followed up, but no, 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 where are you from? I'm like, New York, right? It's like, I can't be any clearer than I already am. And then it'll sort of dig down deeper and be like, oh, like, where are your parents from? Or what is your heritage? And then I'll tell people I'm, you know, of Chinese descent. But I think that that's it. When people, you know, talk to me or whatever, it's, I'm just the same as you guys are right? I'm an American, just the same. I may not exactly look like you. And sort of how I grew up and what those cultural leanings were growing up, they all inform and sort of made me who I am. And, you know, that's a part of me, that Chinese-ness, that Asian-ness is a part of me. And, you know, how I react to things or how I speak. And when I say speak, I don't mean like whether or not I have an accent or not, but like what words I use, right? Love languages and whatnot. It's like, there are differences because of how I grew up. And, you know, I think it would be very worthwhile, I think, for white Americans to be able to look at things through a lens that has more shades of gray, rather than looking at life in very binary terms of American versus not American, and hence good versus bad. I think because of how I grew up, I do look at life in very many shades of gray where 
you know, oftentimes I don't like to use the words good or bad. I like to refer to things as being appropriate. And, you know, when we talk about things in a cultural context, I think that that's it, where, you know, it's very easy, I think, for white Americans to say, well, that part of your culture is bad. And it's like, is it? It's not bad. It's just different, right? And this goes across like so many different cultures. And it's not about good or bad. It's just what's appropriate in the context of that culture. And if that culture is comfortable with it and they think that it's appropriate, then let it just be appropriate. It doesn't have to be labeled as being bad because it doesn't fit within sort of your worldview per se. But yeah, I think that that's, you know, to me, that's kind of my wish is just to be able to view things in more shades of gray, because I think once we're able to be more open-minded and view things in shades of gray, it allows people to develop a lot more understanding. And I think that we're lacking that. I think that's so powerful. Like my head is nodding like super huge right now. You know, you touched on so many things, right? I think like the empathy that we have for people, the fact that it has been largely binary, right? Who is an American versus who is other for white Americans at times. And to think bigger than that, right? That there are so many narratives that comprise our collective American narrative. And we have one dominant one, but a lot of others that are equally important. So to be mindful of that, I love everything that you said. So I can't think of a better way to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Yeah. But but I got to say, it's like the worst part of that is the expectation that we have to assimilate into that worldview rather than just treating it as being a shade of gray where it's just different. It's not a good or a bad. And there's no reason why we have to assimilate into that worldview because our worldview isn't wrong. So to demand that we assimilate implies that our worldview is wrong. A hundred percent. I feel like that was kind of a mic drop moment here. Yes, it totally was. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Thank you, Alan, so much for your time here. I'll be waiting for those photos, by the way. Gosh, I thought we moved past that. Oh, they're they're amazing. You know, I've seen a couple, (laughs) but I feel like I need a full photo history. So when we talk about Sarah and we talk about, you know, her fashion sense, I remember one time we went to the mall and I was sneaker shopping. And I had to ask Sarah, I'm like, what do you think of these sneakers? And she's like, I don't like them. I'm like, great, I'm buying them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love everything about that story so much. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> you know, I will say it's interesting to be connected again on this platform because for those of you, or I mean, nobody knows really, but in terms of the people that we're talking about in our friendship group going way, way back, you know, we wound up being friends with, I think you called us the Asian misfits. No, that was Moss referred to us as like a bunch of misfits, which is true. I mean, it's Korean, Chinese, Japanese, me. (laughs) Then there's like, and then some of the Japanese people now live in Japan and we're still friends decades later based on that bond that was forged through like to the tail end of high school, because we all went through, I think a lot of wanting to belong, wanting to have a community and also not fitting in to the prescribed view, like you said, the black and white, like this is the group that we're supposed to fit into. And it's awesome. It's been an awesome journey. We all had an epic three-hour Zoom conversation from people around the world a few weeks ago, processing all this anti-Asian hate. I think it's, these are important conversations to be having. And I'm just so glad fashion comments aside about my taste (laughs) that you were willing to come on today. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces.